John chapter number 12, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone against the day of my burying, has she kept this? For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but they, that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. Now I want to read two verses for you out of the 14th chapter of the book of Mark, which is a parallel account of these passages. And the Lord Jesus says this about Mary's actions. He says, She hath done what she could... She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Father, I pray that you bless the preaching of your word over these next few moments. I pray that we glorify you with what's said and with how we respond. I pray that you'd have your will and way in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, in our attitudes. Lord, that we might draw closer to You through surrender. Father, we love You and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a very simple message this evening. I want to take a few moments and I want to look at the worship of Mary of Bethany to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, worship is something that the world would have you to believe is a very relative thing, a very subjective thing, that worship is what you make it or what you decide it is. Uh, by the same token, there's another crowd, I think, that wants to take worship and uh, cross all the T's and dot all the I's and tell you that if you just do A, B, and C, well, that's worship, regardless of where your heart's at or what you're doing. But I believe that in what the Lord Jesus Christ says in Mark, cha- Mark chapter 14 and in John chapter 12, we have a divine endorsement of the type and extent and spirit of the worship of Mary to the Lord Jesus in other words, the Bible says in Mark 14, 8, she hath done what she could. She did everything the Lord expected out of her, required out of her in relation to worship. And if we can just do what Mary did, then I believe we'll be getting the job done. If we'll push away what everybody else says about what worship is, what everybody else thinks and expects out, if we can just do what Mary did, I believe the Lord will be pleased. You see, not everybody in that room was pleased with what Mary did. But I, I, listen, i got news for you now. You might, might as well make up your mind that worship is about pleasing the Lord. It's not about pleasing man. Because oftentimes when you're worshiping the Lord, man is not going to understand it. Man's not going to be pleased with it. Man's not going to appreciate it. And that goes, by the way, that ain't just out in the world. That's in the church house too. And so we, we need to just go ahead and make up our mind who it is we're trying to please with our life, with our lips, with our attitude, with our worship. And uh, let me just advise you this. Go ahead and make your mind up to please the Lord, even if it hair lips everybody else. Amen? Please the Lord with the way we live and what we do. 
And so I believe if we just model ourselves after what Mary did... Now, that doesn't mean, obviously, the Lord Jesus is not walking bodily amongst us. I don't believe that we need to go out and buy a bunch of ointment. You don't need to go down to the perfume counter at the Belk or the J.C. Penney's and go and buy a bunch of, uh, of perfume. But I believe if we can catch the spirit of what she's doing here and apply it to our lives, I believe the Lord will be pleased. I want you to notice, just by way of introduction, three characteristics about her worship that I think are very instructive. Now, let me say, number one, that her worship is not loud. Now, we need to be careful with what we're saying here, because there's nothing wrong with expressive worship. There's a whole crowd today that doesn't like the idea of expressive, animated, vocal worship of the Lord Jesus. And let me just say this, that crowd that condemns that kind of worship, they're wrong. Amen? You can go through the Word of God and see that that expressive, animated, vocal worship and praise of the Lord Jesus Christ is a biblical truth. Hey, listen, they didn't like it when David danced in his day, and there's a crowd that still don't like it that David danced today. Amen? Uh, there was a crowd, Milka, the, the, uh, wife, or the daughter of Saul, the, the husband, or husband, listen to me, that's what she wanted, amen? The wife of David, she looked through the window and she despised him for what he was doing. And there's a crowd, I'm telling you, that if you get worshiping the Lord, you get happy in the Lord, they'll despise what you're doing. And listen, they they don't look at it and say, that's bad, but they look at it and say, well, that's a little much, you know? Let me tell you something, you can't make too much of Jesus. I I mean, you know, Paul said this, that, uh, you know, we are made fools for your sakes. And uh, he talked about it. He, he said that uh, he said sometimes we just just can't help ourselves. Sometimes uh, when we're worshiping the Lord, uh, you know, we're beside ourselves is the way Paul says. We're beside ourselves. And he said, if we be beside ourselves, it is to the Lord. He said, if we're not, it's for your sakes. In other words, what he was saying is this, that, hey, when I get happy in the Lord, I ain't getting happy for you. I'm getting happy in the Lord. And he's saying, if I tone it down, I ain't toning it down for you. God ain't upset for the Lord. God ain't upset with my worship. I might have to tone it down to keep you from crawling under the pew, but I don't have to tone it down for the Lord. He's happy about it. I, I don't know if you realize it, man. You get up and see scenes of heaven in Isaiah and in John and other places in the Bible. They're shouting, man. They're worshiping. They're singing. They're rejoicing. They're happy about being around the Lord Jesus. But it is also, it is equally important that we do not make the loudness of worship an acid test for the genuineness of it. Mary's worship was not loud. It was not a showy worship. It was not a worship that would have made the average person step back and go, Whoa, can you believe how much she loves the Lord Jesus? Because worship is not to be defined merely by the external expression of it, uh, but by the inward spirit of it and by the motive of it. And, uh, you know, you understand, we're Baptists, amen? We're Baptists. Uh, we believe that tongues was a, a sign gift given to the New Testament church. And, by the way, the, the tongues that, were, uh, that are represented today in modern society are nothing like the tongues in the, in the New Testament. Uh, but, but we believe those things are done away with. And, uh, and we don't believe that because we're Baptists. We believe that because we're Biblicists, amen? When that which is uh, perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away with. Uh, so when I talk about outward extraneous external uh, worship, I, or not extraneous, but outward external worship, uh, we're, we're not talking about gibberish and we're not talking about nonsense, but we're talking about intelligent, and by intelligent we don't mean academic, but we mean discernible, understandable. We're talking about uh, intelligent worship in the sense of the worshiper knows what he's doing, not getting in a trance, amen, not falling out slain in the Spirit on the floor, uh, we're talking about intelligent, meaning the worshiper is at his mind. He understands the, his actions and what he's doing around him. 
And so uh, when we say that it's not about being loud, but also there's nothing wrong with being loud, we're not talking about nonsense. We're talking about people rejoicing in the Lord. And it's important that we don't define worship merely by that one characteristic. Uh, listen, there's a lot of people I know that, man, uh, you get in some of these meetings, and when you're preaching, you go out and you have youth meetings, and you go out and worship, and you're in places. I mean, you hear people shout, <laughs> you know, and uh, you hear people, I'm talking about just getting happy in the Lord. But by the same token, some of those people, you know what their life is. And they'll go into the house of God, man, they'll shout her down. And then they'll turn around and go out elsewhere, and you hear their language, and you see the way they live, and you see what they're doing. It don't matter that they're loud in the house of God. The question is, is their life loud when they go out into the world that's around them? Nothing wrong with expressive worship. It's biblical to have expressive worship. But let us never mistake the external expressiveness of worship as being an acid test, being a vindicator of the authenticity of the spirit of the worshiper. Uh, listen, you, you're around church long enough, you learn the words to say. You learn what to say, when to say. You learn how you get around God's people and you know how to shout and so on and so forth. And just because people do that, that doesn't mean there's anything to it. But by the same token, how dare us look at somebody that is doing that and say, you're not genuine, how dare you? So it's not defined by that. I, I'd like for you to notice it's not loud. Let me say number two, it's not lofty, her worship wasn't. Her worship was not, you know, there's the other end of the spectrum, right? And there's these people that think it, that if, you know, it's, if, if the church house isn't full of God's chosen frozen, you know what I mean? And uh, the, I remember hearing one time a story about Mays Jackson uh, was up preaching. And a lot of y'all remember Brother Mays. And uh, he, he was up preaching and, and uh, they were they starting to, man, people were starting to shout. He could see this person down about midway back and they was getting nervous, you know. And they, they, they weren't used to that. And they finally, it was just too much. And, and they got up and they, they started to, to head out. And Brother Mays called out and said, be careful, there's a puddle down there where people are starting to thaw out. Amen? And, uh, you know, there's some people think that if worship is not this ethereal experience that is, you know, uh, robed angels' voices showering down from the heavens with indiscernible uh, music about, you know, stuff that uh, you and I doesn't operate on the level that we live, that there's nothing to it. I believe that we can both rejoice the Lord and reverence the Lord at the same time. I, I, I don't think there's anything uh, irreverent about shouting and enjoying ourselves in the house of God. Uh, worship does not have to be loud, but it also don't have to be lofty. One of the things that I have strived for as a pastor with this church, and thankfully this church is already this way when I got here, but... Uh, we strove to do is that we want to be reverent, we want to be respectful of the Lord. We want the house of God to be a place where God is lifted up. But I don't want it to ever be the kind of place where people come into and feel like they have to shh, hush down. That's not what I see, man. You see the worship in the Old Testament. And man, they had a 200 and something voice choir. And those instruments would start going and they'd start singing. And God's people would start rejoicing in the Lord. It was an event when it was worship time in the Old Testament temple. And I think in the house of God, it ought to be an event, man. When we worship God, I think it ought to be something where we feel liberty in the Lord to enjoy ourselves in the house of God. And you say, well, preacher, how can you keep it under control? Why, why, you know, what about wildfire? I've heard people say that. What about wildfire? I remember hearing a preacher say one time, hey, there's enough wet blankets in your average Baptist church that you don't have to worry about wildfire. No, and I understand what they mean. And what they're talking about is they're talking about unscriptural tongues and stuff like that and slain in the Spirit. But I found this to be true. When the Holy Ghost is coordinating a service, it's not ever about nonsense. Because He always knows how to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. He always does. 
So I don't think it was lofty, but we do notice a third quality I think it's important is it was a loving thing that she was doing. The Bible says she hath done what she could. True worship is prompted by our love for the Savior. And it is defined by our love for the Savior. You see, if we, we're not going to worship the Lord if we don't love the Lord. And if we love the Lord, we're not going to want to do anything in our worship that dishonors the Lord Jesus. Now, I know there's people out there that when their version of worship is just a, a puffing up of the flesh. I'm aware of that. But if we're to be like Mary, then we ought to pour our hearts into the place of worship. And we ought to use worship as a means to express how appreciative we are to the Lord Jesus for His love towards us. And I want you to notice a few things about her worship, and then we'll close tonight. I want you to notice, number one, that her work, what she did, was a small thing. In fact, we notice, number one, that he, she had a small name. Mary was not a very prominent person at that time. Now, we are very familiar with her name because of the role that she played in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. But she would not have been considered a real important person at the time. I'm just being honest. I, I mean, her and her sister Martha and her brother Lazarus, they all lived together. Right there tells you if they're not wealthy. They're all living together under one roof there in Bethany. Uh, they don't seem to be wealthy people. They don't seem to have a lot of money or well-to-do. Uh, they probably were not at the, the level of social stature where anybody would have noticed what was going on in their lives. In fact, uh, if it hadn't been for the fact that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, nobody would have even been paying attention on this day to what she did. You know, worship, it might be that, that nobody ever knows the things you do for the Lord Jesus Christ. You may never get famous for being a Bible-believing Christian. In fact, I would venture to say you probably won't. There's a handful of names and of people that seem to rise to a place of prominence in society. But the truth of the matter is this. The, the local church is comprised of saved, baptized believers. And there's no big eyes and little U's. Amen? We're all just sinners saved by grace just trying to please the Lord best we can know how from the truth of the Word of God. Her name wasn't a big name. Nobody would have really known who Mary was. But that didn't matter. Her interest was not people knowing who she was. Her interest was in people knowing who Jesus was. And the substance and truth of worship is not centered around our personhood. It's centered around the personhood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I could give you a basic definition of what worship is, I would say it is this. It is the adjusting of the mind to the smallness of ourselves and the vastness of God. And showering with, with expressive praise and adoration upon Him the love that has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. It's bragging on the Lord and telling Him how much He means to us. And spending time thinking about how great He was to take mind of you and me. So worship isn't about you having a big name, you being prominent, you being important. Worship is just about uplifting the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. And the sooner we understand that, the sooner our worship will be more satisfying and meaningful. You see, as long as the, the reason that we come to the house of God is to be seen, we're never going to be satisfied coming to the house of God. And as long as the reason we serve the Lord is so that people will clap for us or appreciate us or acknowledge us, we're never going to be satisfied for two reasons. One is no one will ever, satisfy, no one will ever praise us enough for our flesh to be satisfied. And then two... Our flesh couldn't and wouldn't be satisfied no matter what amount of praise. I found this to be true in the house of God, that people that are serving the Lord for the right reasons, they never need anybody to notice a thing that they do. But people that are craving praise, you could put a billboard on Pleasant Ridge Road declaring what they've done, 
and they'd still not be satisfied. tells you that it's not about the praise specifically. It's about the mindset and motive and intention for what we do. Uh, we noticed that she had a small name, but let me say that she was known by a small number, or this work, what she did on this day, was known by a small number at that time. Now, it's interesting how the Lord took something that was done in secret and brought it out into the open. He's promised He'd do that. And let me encourage you to say this tonight. There's never anything you do for the Lord, but what one day it will be made known in front of the world. But the truth is, at the time you do it, it may be that nobody notices or even cares that you've done it. Some of the things that encourage me most as a pastor. And by the way, worship is not about pleasing the pastor. Worship is about pleasing the Lord. But some of the things that encourage me the most is when I go by and I see little things people have done around the property where they've taken initiative and they didn't come to me and say, Preacher, did you see this? And they didn't come to me and say, you know, Preacher, I'm going to do But they just quietly went about and did it and made sure a job got done and made sure a burden was took off somebody else. And they didn't even care whether anybody ever knew who did it. There's things done around here all the time that, I, I mean, I, I can guess who did it. I have suspicions about who did it. But truthfully, I may never know for sure because this person uh, or these people would never come to me and say, Preacher, did you see what I did? You see, the truth is, worship is not about people taking note of what we do. Because, again, worship's not about us. It's not about the people. It's about the Lord Jesus. And it should satisfy us to know that He always notices what we've done. Listen, you don't pick a candy wrapper up off the ground around here, but what the Lord takes notice. You, you, listen, you don't go through and, and, and turn a light off that somebody forgot, but what the Lord takes notice. Everything that you do, and by the way, I'm not making all those things synonymous with worship. That's not worship, that's service. I understand that. But it's also true relative to our worship. When we uh, give praise and adoration to the Lord and appreciation unto Him, man may never take note of it. But God always takes note of it. I want you to notice that not only uh, was her work small, I want you to notice, number two, that her work was spiritual. Look what it says down in verse number five of our text. Uh, well, we'll back up to verse number four. The Bible says, Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? Her work was not understood by the people that were directly around her. In fact, we note, number one, that it was mocked. You see, when Judas says this, there's a tinge. I don't know if you can really realize but there's a tinge of sarcasm in his voice. I, I, don't, I, I do think that, that maybe he intended it to appear as being genuine. But the Bible lays bare his motive by saying not that he cared for the money, but because he was a thief. And I think there was sort of a tone of sarcasm in what he was saying. And by saying that, I want you to listen now. Here's what he was saying. He thought he was saying that this is just an ill way, ill way to spend money. But you know what he was saying by extension of that? He was saying, Lord, your worship is not worth what she gave. That's how the natural man responds to the way that we serve and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. I, you'll hear it all the time, I promise you. If, you. if you live around lost people, work with lost people, and if they know about your walk with God and your church, I guarantee you there's people that you've heard say things like, why do you spend so much time down there at that church? Why do you, man, I mean, maybe go one, one service a week, but I mean, why, why would you be down there all that time? What's the use in spending all that time with those people? Maybe you've heard things like this. Why do you give money to that church down there? You could be using that on you, or you could be... I mean, why would you tithe and give money to the Lord? You see, the natural man doesn't understand what we're doing here. 
And inasmuch as you live and walk in the natural man, you'll be dissatisfied with the work of God that's being done in the house of God and the ministry of God. And I don't say that to insulate our ministry against, against examination or this or that. I'm just saying this, that anything that we do for the Lord Jesus, we can never do too much for Him. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. It was mocked. The world doesn't understand what we're doing here tonight. And that's part of the reason that you're seeing the trend in society that you're seeing today is as secular humanism takes a grip on culture and society. And we're seeing that today. Uh, You've heard me say this before, but we're in the midst of a culture war right now. And as secular humanism takes takes a hold on society, what we do here tonight is going to become more and more foreign and alien to the world at large. They are only going to understand it less and less and less. We need to understand that what we're doing here tonight is not to to please man, which may be seen, but it's to please God, which cannot be seen. What we're doing here tonight is not to operate in the old man, that which seems logical and, and, uh, you know, academic, but to operate in the new man, that which is spiritual and that which is living and that which is life. It was mocked by the world, but notice that it was memorialized by the Lord Jesus. He said this, he said, wheresoever this gospel is preached, this shall be spoken of her. Uh, it's interesting that it doesn't say uh, the gospel. He says this gospel. You say, preacher, why do you think he said that? Well, I think for this reason, because I think the Lord prophetically knew that we was going to have four gospels in our Bible. Right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Right? We're all on the same page. I know it's Sunday night. You had a good meal. You took a nap. All right? You, you, this, is, this is just the extended break in between your nap and your bedtime. I understand that, but... But there are four Gospels. And I think, and by the way, it's memorialized there in Mark's Gospel. And I think when he says this Gospel, he's saying the Gospel of Mark. Wherever in the world somebody preaches through the Gospel of Mark, they're going to talk about her. They're going to mention this lady. The Lord Jesus memorialized it. He took note of it and He remembered it. And He ensured that God's people would one day take note of what she did. Now, on this side of eternity, maybe nobody will ever understand your your relationship with God. Maybe nobody will ever appreciate the things you do to serve the Lord. Maybe nobody will ever validate your form of worship when you worship the Lord. But one day, the Lord Jesus, He will make it known. And He is taking note of it. I see that her work was small, and I see her work was spiritual. Let me say, number three, her work was sacrificial. Look back at verse number three. The Bible says, Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. It's interesting that the Bible goes to great lengths to tell us that this spikenard was very costly. Now, we could have gone and done our own study. I mean, this is sometimes we treat the Bible as though it's far removed from being able to learn anything about it just from secular history. But that's not so. We could have gone back. We could have looked at the history of various spices that were used and the trade routes and the values of them. Oftentimes, the trade routes were what dictated whether something was valuable. I mean, if you could get it easily, it wasn't very valuable. But if it took a long time and a great effort and a lot of money to, to acquire it, then uh, it became uh, something that was very, very valuable. But God... God does not leave that up to interpretation. He's very careful. He wants us to understand that it cost her something to give this to the Lord Jesus. I would say this. If we're seeking a a means and a way to measure the extent of our devotion, it can be measured by the cost which it requires from us. You know, a lot of people, the way they serve the Lord is just merely within the parameters of convenience. 
In fact, I'd say the vast majority of Christians. And when I say Christians, I'm not talking about some, you know, wingbat way out there crazy. I'm talking about Bible-believing Christians. The vast majority of them worship by what's convenient. They'll be at church if it's easy to be at church. They'll read their Bible if it's easy to read their Bible. They'll pray if it's easy to pray. But if they ever have to disrupt their daily routine to let God have the right of way to yield to Him, they won't do that. But true worship, the kind of worship that God is pleased with, is the kind of worship that costs us something. Worship is measured not by how it fills God's coffers, but by how it empties ours. God doesn't need our worship to be God. And by the way, God's not waiting for us to, to, to uh, give affirmation to His goodness and grace and power. God knows He's God. He don't need you to tell Him He's God for Him to know He's God. But what He's trying to do is elicit from you something that costs you something so that you might have a means and way of expressing back to Him the love that you feel towards Him that has been shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Ghost. We find this to be true in the parable of the widow's might. Do you remember? Uh, the Lord Jesus told a parable about the fellow that goes by and gives a big, lofty, long offering. And everybody sees it and everybody's proud of it. And then this little widow woman walks by and takes two mites. Now, two mites didn't even make a whole penny to us. Our, our economy may not be good, but at least, you know, we don't have a, a currency worth half a penny. But it would have been the, not yet, but it would have been the equivalent of, of, of like two mites would have made a penny. And she placed it in there. And, you know, it's funny. The, the Roman Catholics used to, when they were trying to uh, sell absolution and stuff, they'd talk about that every time that the, a coin clings in the, you know, in, in the plate that heaven hears. I'd have you know this. That whenever that fellow dropped in his big old offering that he thought would impress everybody and God too, heaven didn't even hear it. But would you believe it when that little widow woman takes two half pennies and drops them in there, heaven perks up and took note. And you know why? Because the Bible says that this man out of his abundance gave, but this woman out of her poverty gave. What we give to the Lord is not measured by, by how much it gives him, but by how much it takes from us. And so let me say this, I believe I'm on clear scriptural authority when I say this, that until we're giving to where we can feel it, we're not giving enough. Now, I don't say that to get you to give more, man. We've been having, I mean, things have been good. We've got good tithes. We've been doing so much stuff around here. I mean, God's blessing. So I don't say that to try to pad the offerings. I just say it to make you realize that giving is not about filling the church's coffers. It's not about filling the Lord's coffer. That's not what giving is about. i got news for you. If you wouldn't give, God would rain it from heaven. God would give it to us from a fish's mouth. I'm not saying that because I'm worried wanting you to give more. I say that to say this, that we're not really giving the way the Lord wants us to until we feel it and it affects us. Because it's out of how it, what it removes from us, not out of what it adds to the Lord that our giving is measured. I want you to notice two things in this. Her pri its price was stated, as we already said. It was very costly. But notice the second thing. Her pride was surrendered. I, I understand this is a different culture back here. And in this culture, I mean, you've heard people say about children that children are better seen and not heard. You heard that, right? Kids ain't heard it yet, but you've... <laughs> But, you know, and that's one thing we are losing in our generation. But in a lot of ways, women were in that same situation in this culture this time. For her to walk in this room and have in her hands this pound of ointment and to break this box and to pour it on the Lord Jesus and begin to just weep and take her hair. By the way, the Bible says that a woman's hair is the glory of her. And began to wash the feet of the Lord Jesus 
Imagine what a persecution to her flesh that had to be. How humiliating. How terrifying that must have been for her to walk into that room with all these important people, with all these people gathered around. The Bible says there's a whole crowd gathered there because they came not to see Jesus, but to see Lazarus. There's a whole crowd gathered there. And she walked out and began to take her hair and weep and wash the feet of the Lord Jesus, making her instantly the center of attention in that room and subject to the reproach and scorn and mockery of those that are around. Can I say something to you? Will you receive this in the right spirit? And we won't even hand out a gospel track. Because we're afraid it might be awkward. We won't even talk to our co-worker about Jesus. Because we're afraid it might be a little awkward. God help us. <laughs> I'm just saying that real worship, this is what it looks like. Real worship is taking the flesh, placing it on the altar, and saying, I'll embarrass my pride if that's what it takes to glorify the Lord Jesus. It's part of the reason I believe an altar is important. We have an altar around here. We have altar calls. Do you know that you don't have to be an altar to deal with God? God can deal with you in your pew. God can deal with you in the parking lot. I don't know if you realize this. God can deal with you at home. I hate to say that. We ain't going to have no good attendance now. But So why is it important? Well, I believe this altar is important for the same reason that the Old Testament altar was important. It was a public expression of the sacrificial element of worship. And what we're doing, we're not coming up and putting a bullock or, or, or a sheep or a lamb on this. We're placing our pride on this altar. And we're acknowledging, and there's a finality to it as well. Hey, listen, it, it's one thing when we hide away and we want to be like Nicodemus we, or Joseph of Arimathea. We want to be a secret disciple. But that ain't the kind of worship God's looking for. God's looking for the kind of worship where a person will say, yeah, I might make a fool of myself, but like Paul, if I made a fool of myself for the glory of God, I'll just make a fool of myself. I remember one time, I'll tell you a story, would that be all right? I remember one time when I was a teenager. I don't, I, teenagers are weird, and I was no exception. And kids just do weird things. I, I don't even know how to explain. I've I got to persecute my flesh just to tell you this story. I remember one time when I was a kid, I used to play guitar a lot. I do occasionally now, but not very often. But I remember one time I was sitting down, and I wrote out this, like, real Mexican-sounding song. Real, like, Desperado. You know, I mean, you hear, you know, you, you see Clint Eastwood, you know, galloping along the Wyoming Plains, High Plains Drifter or something, you know. And, and, and you could hear this song. And I was hanging around weird people at the time, and I, I don't know why, but I got it in my head. It sounded like a Taco Bell commercial. And I, I remember I went one time. There's video of it somewhere. Don't look for this on YouTube because it might be there. But I remember one time I wrote out all these lyrics in this song about how wonderful Taco Bell was. Isn't that weird? I told you I was a weird kid. You think I'm weird now. You should have known me then. And I went to a Taco Bell. And I sat down. I ordered some tacos. I swear this is the truth. i got people in this room that can testify this is true. It's not just one of them. You know, most preachers are lying when they tell stories, right? I'm not lying. This really happened. I went and I sat down and I ordered some tacos. And I sat down and I ate one of them tacos. And as loud as I could muster, I, I don't know, I was probably 16 at the time or something. As loud as I could muster, I said, whew, man, those are good tacos. Those are the best tacos I've ever had. In fact, I am so inspired by these tacos, I have to sing about it. And I pulled out, I'm serious now, I pulled out my guitar and I began to play this song in the middle of a Taco Bell and sing at the top of my lungs. To the Taco Bell chef. 
He came out and listened to me. I bet you he went home and said, Honey, I had the weirdest day at work today. I was a weird kid. I was. I could tell you other stories, but I'm not going to spend the time to do it. If you want to come fellowship, we'll share weird stories. But here's what, here's what I think about. I think about just the, the absolute ham-bone, haughty, pride, stupidity of doing something like that. And I do that for, I don't know, just the sake of general insanity, I guess. But then I might have trouble going out and witnessing to someone about the Lord Jesus. I'm just saying there was something public about it, right? No turning back. And the altar, the purpose behind the altar, in as much as it relates to worship, is to cause us to come and to lay ourselves, our pride on that altar, and say, Lord, You've dealt with me, and I publicly acknowledge You've dealt with me, and Lord, I'm surrendering myself unto You and asking You to deal with me further. You see, her worship was sacrificial. It cost her something. It cost her pride. She had to be humiliated in front of everyone around her. And by the way, it's interesting because the the spiritual man in her was not humiliated. The spiritual man was bolstered and was glorified and was magnified. And tonight we're sitting here talking about what she did in the new man, not in the old man. But the old man absolutely was humiliated. And you see, that's that's why worship is so important. Because it divides and separates those two aspects. At no other moment in our spiritual walk is the division between the old man and the new man as evident and felt as it is at the moment of worship. The new man is magnified and glorified, or in as much as he glorifies the Lord, he is. He is bolstered. He is buoyed to a place of joy and jubilation. And the old man is cast down and decimated. And ignored. I see that her work was sacrificial. But can I say finally, and I'm done tonight, her work was special. Special. There's three reasons that it was special. I'd like you to notice that there was a special acknowledgement of it. Verse number 7, Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my bearing hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Says she hath done what she could. Says it would be acknowledged, it would be realized. And her work was special because the Lord set up and took note of it. If nobody else is happy with it, at least the Lord was happy with it. I see that there was a special acknowledgement. I see there was a special aroma that surrounded her worship. Listen to what it says back in uh, verse number 3, the very end of it. The Bible says, the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Now, that's indicative of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they'd burn incense unto the Lord. And the Bible talked about how that was a sweet savor in the nostrils of God. I tracked this down over in Philippians chapter number 4, right before the preaching tonight. In verse 18, Paul talking about what the church had done. It says, But I have all and abound, I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. In other words, let me say, by the way, not only could God smell that ointment, everybody else could smell it. The nostrils of God benefited by it, but the nostrils of everybody else benefited by it. You might be amazed how you'd embolden others to worship God if you'd just worship God. You might be amazed how you'd embolden others to serve God if you'd serve God. 
I don't have time to go through and preach it, but it always when I talk about things like this, it reminds me uh, in the Old Testament of when Jonathan and his armor bearer uh, go down and, and begin to fight against the Philistines and Saul and the army of Israel are up at Gibeah and Saul's laid up under a pomegranate tree just cooling it. He's not interested in the battle. And uh, the children of Israel are fearful of the Philistines and Jonathan and his armor bearer. They say, let us go down. Perhaps the Lord will fight for us. And they go down and they begin to fight. And they look down, Saul and his men do from the hillside. And they say, who is that down there uh, that the Lord is helping to win this fight? And they take account and find out it's Jonathan and his armor bearer. So Saul and his men follow them down because they had the gall and the courage to step out and to begin to fight the battle. And you know the Bible even says this, that there were Israelites that had hidden themselves in the rocks and the caves. When they saw what was going on, they ran to the battle. And then the Bible says that there were uh, children of Israel that had, that had turned traitor and had been fighting for the Philistines. And when they saw Jonathan and his armor, then they came across enemy lines and started fighting against the Philistines. You might be amazed how many people would go if you'd go. You might be amazed how many people would serve if you'd serve. You might be amazed how many people, I've heard people say time and again, how many of you have heard a testimony like this? Somebody says, I was a little kid, I was sitting in service, I was deep under conviction, I said to myself, if so-and-so goes, I'll go. I've heard that, man, I've heard that from tons of people. And I'm not saying we ought to do what we do to please others, but I am saying this, if we're doing what we do to please the Lord, then it will please the right people. There was a special acknowledgement and a special aroma, but then notice there was a special attention. That she was there for. This is interesting. Look at verse number 9. The Bible says, Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there. It's talking about Jesus. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. It's interesting to me, because a lot of people were there because of what Jesus had done. But Mary, she was there because of who Jesus was. A lot of people were there for Jesus plus. She was there for Jesus alone. And, you know, that's when worship really gets down to the, to the nitty-gritty. When we get to the place that we're just here to meet with the Lord. Man, we don't care if anybody likes our song. We don't care if anybody likes our testimony. We don't care if anybody likes what the choir does or how the preacher does. We don't, that ain't, that's not what interests me. I, you know what I'm here for? I'm here to please the Lord Jesus Christ. If He'll show up, and I know He's always with us. I know if we're two or more gathered together there in my name, there am I. I understand the Holy Ghost is always indwelling us. I understand all that. But there, there's a difference, by the way, between the, the, uh, the, the constant abiding of the Holy Ghost and the particular blessing of the Holy Ghost upon a service. And that's what we mean when we say, if God will show up. <laughs> We're saying we want God to be glorified. Man, it don't matter if anybody else pays attention. If, if I can just get here and be here for Jesus and Him alone, then I'll have done what God expects out of me. That's the kind of worship we need to be looking for. That's the kind of worship that pleases the Lord. And that's the kind of worship, listen carefully, and I'll make this statement in close. That's the kind of worship that's going to count a thousand years from now. Just as it counts today relating to her life. Let's bow our heads with our eyes closed.